always depended on the kindness of strangers. All right, so he's not a regular rat or, or even a super rat. He's a scared little mouse, that's all. Ha, I had two years to grow claws, Mother. Jungle Ray! Welcome to The Real Woman, a podcast about all things cinematic. I'm your host, Emmanuel Perryman. Joining me today is Jessica Rainey. She's the author of seven books. Her latest, Rack and Ruin, is the final book in her Appalachian Supernatural Noir series. Her other works include A Zombie Apocalypse Adventure, These Violent Delights, and two collections of short stories. Oddballs, and Dreadful Pennies. She has also co-written a collection of short, dark fiction, Tales from the Den, Volume 1. Originally from Southern Ohio, which we'll come back to later in this episode, Jessica now lives in Houston, Texas, and is active in the Houston Writers Guild and Space organizations. Jessica, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Uh, so the topic that we're going to be tackling today is multi-layered, to say the least. Uh, yeah. You came up with half of it, which was Silence of the Lambs, yeah. uh, the book and the movie, which are favorites of yours. And I kind of threw a wrench in it and said, oh, let's also talk about The Collector, the book and the movie. So I guess I'm going to just start off by saying, what did you think of the collector? Because I know how you know, I know how you feel about Silence with the Lambs, yeah. and we're definitely going to get into that. But the collector came before, and I'll just give a, a brief synopsis. The book is by John Foles. It came out in 1963. Uh, the movie followed quite shortly thereafter and came out in 1965, and the movie is directed by William Wyler, and who we'll get into a little bit later, and stars uh, young Terrence Stamp, who most listeners probably know from his role as Zod in the Superman movies, and Samantha Egar. And it's essentially about a young man who is a butterfly collector, and then kind of decides to up the ante and collect women. Yes. Uh, so what did you think about uh, the movie? We'll start with the movie. So I think that it's a perfect companion piece to The Silence of the Lambs. So I always get excited when you send me something to go watch because I know it's going to like be really interesting to compare and contrast the things or the movie's going to be crazy good I'm going to be like this is crazy so I like the movie a lot um I've seen it a couple of times now and I think that it's definitely like the book and the movie come at a great time in the mid-60s when horror was sort of going from like b-movie status and I guess you could call it still b-movie status even to this day but when it's kind of like moving from that into things that we would call like modern classics today. So I, I thought that the movie was beautifully shot. There's so many 
camera work that Weiler did, and I know he was such a perfectionist that he got everything exactly the way he wanted it to, exactly right. Particularly, like, when you start watching the movie and after the initial part where he discovers the creepy uh, country estate that he purchases to do his women collecting. Um, But when it goes to him stalking Miranda... It's really, the camera work is really interesting because it's like, you sort of see it from his point of view, but not exactly, like, the views are weirdly obscured, like you would if you were looking around a corner, if you were looking around a signpost, and just the way he stalks her, and it's that way in the book, too, you know, um, in the book, it's first person, so he talks a lot about how he knows where she's at every hour of every day, you know, there's not a time where he doesn't know where this girl is. He knows her as well as he knows the, you know, the insects that he collects. So it's really interesting the way the characters, or that particular character is shot for me when you watch the first part of the movie. And, you I know, think I, think it's, I think it's interesting that you mention the, the angles because are sort of off kilter. Um, yeah. You're right. I think that's uh, representing him. And his yep. psyche is clearly off kilter <laughs> a bit. He definitely gave me some incel vibes Yeah. Uh, this time uh, around. I thought that it was really interesting. So they hit, they go right for it, right? So this movie is, it's 1965, this movie is made. And so when I thought about that, I was like, okay, well, that's kind of like, before the sexual revolution, like before, you know, there's a lot of censorship and stuff in movies. You couldn't show this, you couldn't show that. But they, he went right for the jugular with it. She, you know, when um, when Freddie abducts Miranda and she realizes she's been abducted, and she, like you can watch the actress's face, like, does he want to rape me? That's like her first, like, oh my god, this is what's gonna happen to me. And he's like, no, 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 that's not it. They go right for it. They don't. They don't mince words about it. They don't pitter-pat around it. They go right for it, and it makes you uncomfortable. Um, but you're even uncomfortable in the way he's holding himself back from her. Like, he's clearly trying to keep himself under control. And there's a scene where he loses it just for a minute, and it's really terrifying. Like, it's quietly terrifying. And then it's over with. And he's like, that won't happen again. Everything's fine. I don't want to hurt you. I just want you to like me. And... You know, as we go through the movie, we realize, like, he kind of does want that, but he kind of doesn't. He's obviously sexually repressed. There's something wrong with him. So you can just see that happening. And it's like she tries to goad him into it. She actually uses sex to kind of, like, force his hand to do a cup, you know, to try to get free, to try to manipulate him. And he figures it out, and he's very angry about it. It makes him even angrier than her trying to escape. Well, Um, it's like... Yeah, no, I agree. I think... I think to, to go about it. I think to a certain extent it's like she's trying everything in her arsenal. Yep. And she's never encountered a person like him before. And you know, the man who she encounters, that's what they want. So, she's kind of just to a certain extent going off of experience. Well, guys, this is sex is usually what what guys want, so maybe if I just comply or do it that will help she obviously there's no way she could have escaped because to begin with 
she doesn't know what, she doesn't understand the type of person that he is. No, and he's thought of everything. You know, there's a there's a scene where she gets into his office and she thinks she's going to get away. She tries to unlock the window. He's put a tiny little padlock on every single window. He's super detail-oriented. Like, you're not, oh, you're yeah. not getting away from that guy. Like, <laughs> if he decides he's collected you, you're staying collected. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he also, she's a person. And he's not... He's not wired to deal with actual people. No. He doesn't want her to be a person. He wants, which is really part of that, you know, serial killer mentality, one of is the objectification. And, and I think they really, they touch on it definitely in the movie, but they really get at it a lot in the book, particularly with the whole sort of subplot of the photography. Yeah. And the whole, like, pornography. Like, that's an angle that I feel like they couldn't do that in the movie. For sure. You know, I, I look at that movie, it's a product of, like, the beginnings of things like that, the, the grittiness and the dirtiness that you could show, I guess. Um, and I mean, like, you know, starting in the 70s when movies got a lot rougher, a lot, the subject matter gets a lot more, you know ugly like intense and it's just the beginnings of that i kind of looked around and i like to look at the timing of movies and what's going on around them and when we get to the silence of the lambs there's just a ton of stuff going on around that um but this movie is like 1965 stuff that's happening around that time i mean psycho right is 1960 right um I looked because I looked up. Okay, what horror movies were going on at this time? So like, Psycho's nineteen sixty, and so you've got people terrified of that movie, and they want more of that. They want more of that. I've been on. I know you know. I've been on like a Betty Davis, Joan Crawford kick here for like the last <laughs> yes. couple of weeks. Yeah. And so I watched um, Baby Jane over again. Baby Jane's like nineteen sixty two. Um, right. And then, you know. In 1964, like, just the perspective, things that were happening around this movie, uh, Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price, which is an adaptation of my favorite horror novel of all time, uh, I Am Legend by Richard Matheson. So anybody who hasn't read that book uh, and you're a horror fan, I recommend you go out and read everything you can by Richard Matheson, but particularly read that book and then you can make up your mind whether you think the Will Smith movie stands up to it. I won't go there. Um... But then Straight Jacket with Joan Crawford comes out in 1964, which is like the axe murderer slasher movie that she makes, or a precursor to a slasher movie. And then Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. So all those movies are made right around this time. Then 1965, you make this one. I think this one is more, I'm not going to say artistic exactly. I'm going to say it's very well thought out. Well, I feel like it takes it more seriously. I mean, I love whatever happened to baby Jane, but there's definitely a heavy dose of camp in there and a bit of tongue in cheek in there that allows you to, to, it's almost like you're watching it more just to see Betty Davis with Joan Crawford. And it embraces the B movie aspect of it. Whereas the collector is not a B movie. Right. It's B movie subject matter. It's, It's very much like the silence of the lambs. B movie subject matter not B movie production, not not execution of B movies at all. And I, and mean, William, I just William wanted to Wyler say, is an amazing director. Like, oh, definitely. Go into him. 
And he, well, let's just start off with, you were talking about movies that were coming out at the same time. William Wyler chose to do The Collector over The Sound of Music. I mean, if you could choose two movies that are more not like each other. Yeah, they're just similar. And he just basically, he said, The Collector was more interesting, which I totally get. It, it yep. is. I mean, and I, I can enjoy The Sound of Music, but The Collector definitely just has more layers. It's, more, it's definitely, I can see that being more interesting, but William Wyler was we should say, considered second only to John Ford in terms of, like, greatest directors. He's got a slew of Academy Awards. He is known for movies like, you mentioned Betty Davis, one of her favorite, uh, famous ones, The Letter. He did The Letter. He did Weathering Heights. He did one of my favorites, The Heiress, which definitely is like a sort of gothic... It's not a horror movie, per se, but... You know, there's DNA in there. He did The Little Foxes, Mrs. Miniver, The Best Years of Our Lives, Roman Holiday. After this, he does Funny Girl. And <laughs> and, and right before this, so he did Ben-Hur, which was, um, yeah. it did well, but it was kind of critically panned. And basically, after he did this, it was like he said, the intellectuals liked me again. Like, <laughs> they all kind of like panned him for Ben-Hur, but then really gave him props for, for this movie. But I think what's interesting is between Ben-Hur and The Collector, he also does The Children's Hour, which has its own issues. <laughs> to be, to be uh, you know, euphemistic. And so it's interesting because I feel like I don't think of him as a horror director, and yet he definitely had movies leading up to The Collector that there were sort of droplets here and there. Yeah. Uh, of the gothic and, and, and a sort of, a, you know, creepy atmosphere. And so I could definitely see how he would have seen this movie as just a great challenge as opposed to this, to sound of to the sound of music, I could also see why they would have asked him to, to do the sound of music. Like, I could see yeah. why why both of those movies came to him. Yeah, I think that horror, we talked a little, we're talking a little about B-movie status and horror, and what, it, what does it really take to direct a horror movie well? A lot of people, or write horror well, or what do you enjoy about horror when you watch it? And for me, I mean, I am not... Um, don't get me wrong. I love me some violence. I really like a solid slasher movie and fun. You know, I think they're fun. I think they're fantasy. They're something that makes my brain happy. Um, they're hilarious. Sometimes I think they're funny. I, I've laughed at the Texas Chainsaw Massacre because something. Sometimes just one little thing will make me laugh like that. But when you when you want a good horror movie, you want a good scare. You want to have dread. You want to even if you're not like jump scared, you want that feeling of dread and of bad things are going to happen it's cathartic and you know if you watch this movie and you don't continually just have this idea that very bad things are going to happen I mean I don't know what movie you're watching because even though it's not dark like the colors aren't dark the way it's shot isn't dark 
I mean, I guess she lives in, like, a basement prison. That's kind of dark. But it's even the basement prison, he does his best to fix it up to where it's, like, a little apartment. Like, he gives her every single thing she could want with food. Whatever food you want, I'll get for you. Do you want art supplies? you want books? What do you want? I'll get it for you. He's going out of his way to be kind. But that dread is always there because you know he's going to turn on a dime and this is going to be bad. You know, she's not getting out of this alive. And right. so that's what that's what you love about horror. If you love horror, is that sense of dread that this is not this is not going to end well. But for horror to be done really well and for me to be effective, it, there has to be a hope. There has to be a hope that this could end better than what I think it's going to. And even if I know in my brain it isn't going to, like I know this is not going to end well, but I'm going to fool myself into believing that it is going to end well because I I want to see this happen. But I really don't. I do want to see it end badly. <laughs> I wouldn't be watching a horror movie if I didn't want to see it end badly. Right. And I have to say, Terrence Stamp is bone-chillingly terrifying in this movie. Yes. And actually, Wyler chose Samantha Eggar because he knew that Terrence Stamp had a crush on her. Oh, that's icky. <laughs> Isn't that icky? Yeah. Yeah, so it was, like, creepy before the cameras even began to roll. so young in this. When you watch it, it's like a... I mean, you'll recognize, like, immediately who it is if you if you know who he is. But you're like, oh, my gosh, this is crazy. Like, he's so young. He's so pretty. Like, his... He does not... He's not gross-looking. He's not... He dresses... And that's another thing. So th this movie says a lot about, like, class systems, I think. Definitely. You know, uh, Freddy is... He's working class. Um, he's, uh, recently come into a whole bunch of money through the football pools. He wins, basically he wins the lottery for U.S. audiences. Right. Um, and so he has all this money and all he cares about is collecting insects and displaying them and collecting Miranda. That's the only two things he even gives a remote crap about in life. And he throws himself into both of them with every bit of passion and, you know, detail orientation that you could possibly do it and so he just conveys that the way he dresses like he when you first see him he's collecting butterflies so he's wearing like regular clothes but every time you see him after that when he goes to her he's almost always wearing a suit like a tailored Savile Row Brooks Brothers suit where he looks like posh like he looks like he's upper class well facades are like, really important to him yeah right he's he's trying to be something he's not which is you know, the same kind of thing for the Silence of the Lambs, somebody trying to be something they're not. It's just they're doing it for a different reason. Right. You know, he, and he, there's a lot about possession and the use of the butterflies. You know, he, he collects these, he raises them, he cares for them, he loves them, and he kills them anyway because he wants to keep them forever and preserve them and possess them. It's, you know, when you have a pet, when you have something, you're not trying to possess it. You know, you're trying to, like, you enjoy its company. You keep it alive. You enjoy watching it live. He's doing, he thinks he's doing that, and he's not. He's hes literally raising the butterflies to kill them, all of them, and put them in his creepy displays. And he's doing this, but he, he transfers that over into a human being. He sees her from afar. He thinks she's beautiful. He wonders what she's like. He, you know, he's obsessed with her. He, he knows every single detail about her. And when he gets her, he still tries to do that. It's like, if you know your butterfly likes a certain kind of nectar or flower or this, you do everything you can to make this thing happy and contented. And then when it comes down to it, you're still going to put it in a jar, 
put a bunch of chloroform in it and gas it to death. And that's what he does to Miranda. He he brings her every single thing she could want, food, art, you know, he compliments her, he wants her to get and then in the end I mean, spoiler alert, she dies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because he doesn't bring her the one thing she actually needs. Right. She right. he he says, I'll bring you the things that you want, but then she does he doesn't provide the things that she actually needs, which is medicine. But he also you know, it's interesting how you're mentioning the, the butterflies, but in the facade, and I feel like this is something that's sort of talked about more in the book, but they do mention it in the movie. He is not even t like collecting her for him. This is again for the other people in his life. Like he wants them to see him with her. Like, it's not even about her specifically. It's just, I want these people to see me with her so that they'll be jealous of me. Yeah, it's a possession. It's something that, it's not about her. It's about what she gives to him. And what and she represents what she to provides. him. Right. That he's desirable, that he's somebody, you know, and that's, he wants to be somebody, but he doesn't know how to go about it. And he doesn't even exactly know what it is he wants to be. I mean, because right. he doesn't want to be the other guys who he are sort of his friends in as much as, as much as he could have a friend. He doesn't want to be like those guys. He wants to make those guys jealous, but, he, but because he doesn't like them. So I'm not sure. And I think in a way that's, a similar, a, a thing that he shares with Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs is he doesn't know who he is and he doesn't know what he, who or what he wants to be. Right. And so he tries on, sort of, Buffalo Bill tries on more than he does, but, but they try on different personas and different, he tries working, he tries to, you know, he tries to be the dutiful nephew. He thinks he wants to have a girlfriend but he doesn't understand what that means. They both are looking for an identity and they both go about it very differently and very badly. I do think it's interesting that in both movies, the women are, like, are kept in these like basement areas. Obviously Miranda's place is nicer you know she's not living in a well a she's not living in a well but the interior of where she's living looks very much like that well yes it does i mean that stone this was not john Foles' first book but it was but it was the first book he wrote that really did well this was a major bestseller you have a book come out in 63 and the movie comes out 2 years later that was actually one of the highest, the highest amounts paid for a book, for like a first book ever at the time for this movie. So it was interesting because you and I at first, when we were talking about this, we're like, oh, I can't imagine this must have been a hard movie to get made. And apparently, no, it wasn't. This was, this was a best-selling book that they wanted to make immediately. Yeah, and I, I wonder, you know, I think sometimes about, it's not about sophistication of audiences, it's just about who's got purchasing power at the time and who's who's the one going to the movies and watching stuff you know um 
this is the start of like you know teens are going to want to watch this stuff and they do it now right they they specifically market horror movies to young audiences they don't market them to older people right um and when they do it's going to be something that's kind of you know well and they don't they don't market them to to older people they know exactly who they're trying to get to go to a horror movie um but, I mean, I'm old, and I like to go to horror movies, too, you know. Well, um. I think that Psycho, I think that Psycho probably, some older people may have, because at that point, Hitchcock was quite established. And right. so he probably appealed to a, a, a wider audience than your average horror movie director was going to. And I think Whatever Happened to Baby Jane is going to bring in an older crowd just because of the stars yeah joan and betty are gonna bring everybody to that table right same way with uh you know hush hush sweet charlotte i mean betty davis she kind of goes all in with these horror movies kind of and she didn't really shy away from it at all and i think that says a lot i think we're seeing kind of the same thing in horror now you know there's definitely that you're gonna have levels of um crappy horror i don't know crappy horror just horror that's not as highbrow as other stuff I mean, right now you're seeing things like uh, Midsommar and the films of Ari Aster. You know, they're right. making people horror. Like, and that's why some people don't like it. They're like, ooh, I, don't, that's, I just wanted to see some people get chopped up. I didn't want to, this part. You I know, wasn't expecting I think to think. Yeah, I'm not expecting to think during a horror movie. And I think Get but Out like, was is in that vein, too. Exactly. Get Out and Us are, are all very complex in the way that they approach the horror and yet simple it's, I mean they take a simple idea and just keep expounding on it and I, but that's that's just kind of how they're there's a lot of stuff going on right now in horror with that but then there's still the good old-fashioned you know there's gonna be another Halloween movie coming out and the Halloween movie that was out a few years ago with um, Jamie Lee Curtis where she's like kind of like the Terminator Jamie Lee Curtis like Terminator Laurie Strode right. I love that movie I love it. It's it's like it appeals to the teen in me, like the the slasher movie, and it appeals to the you know the the person in me that loves to watch like Tarantino movies, where it's like you know um, Kill Bill, where you're going to get revenge on you. Okay, you know, come for me. You're not going to like what happens to you, Michael Myers, but you can come on and do it. I'll you want to mess me up? I'll mess you up too. It appeals to me on a lot of different levels. But it was smart and funny, and it was still a horror movie, and Jamie Lee Curtis was awesome in it. So, I mean, there's all that going on. There's a lot going on in horror that's more complicated than just the, there's a serial killer, and he puts people in a basement and kills them. I mean, like, yeah. that's great, too. Don't get me wrong. I love all of it. But I like, I like to be challenged a little bit, and I think that's what's exciting about what's going on in horror now. And I think that would have been exciting in 1965 when this movie came out, I would have been in hog heaven with all those movies. I would have been like, this is the greatest ever. <laughs> you know, when I was a kid, um, we didn't have cable or anything because I lived in the backwoods of southern Ohio and we did not have cable, but like my grandpa did. So we would have to go over there once a week because he was kind of homebound, which is a horror story in itself. And <laughs> he lived in like one room of his giant house. And he, anyway, he had cable. But we would watch... Um, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. It would be on TV. We could watch it then. And my mom thought that was the scariest thing ever. My mom hated horror movies. She wouldn't let me watch any of, like, Halloween, Friday. I was not allowed to watch any of that stuff. I didn't actually even see it until I went away to college and then was free to do what I wished. But, like, she would let us watch, like, Universal Monsters. So Dracula was a favorite of hers. And 
I watched that, and I think I watched Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte with her. She liked Betty Davis, so we watched that. But, like, that was the kind of level that I kind of grew up with, or these movies from the 1960s, and I remember being scared by Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. Oh, I was terrified. I was truly terrified. I, and I've told this story before, and my mother's, every time I tell it, my mother's like, stop telling that story. I sound like a horrible mother. I'm like, you don't. But um, I, my friend and I begged my mom to, we were like, we want to watch a scary movie. And she showed us a double feature of Psycho and Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. And I was traumatized for like two years and had horrible nightmares, but I loved them. I mean, I loved the movies at the time. I, I had horrible nightmares for like a year. And I lived in an apartment building and just the way the hallway was and the stairwell, like there were just weird shadows that would be cast onto the wall. And I can remember seeing these just eerie shadows on the wall and like running by them. <laughs> Because yeah. they kind of looked like the hand in Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. So yeah, they, they're terrifying. And I, and even to this day, I am not, by and large, a horror movie fan in the slasher gore vein. I've never seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre all the way through. I can't take it. I'm, <laughs> it would do me in for the rest of my life. I couldn't take it. <laughs> Um, but I love the creepy and I love, yep. that's why I love movies like The Collector, like, and Silence of the Lambs. Like, I don't, I recognize on a certain level that those are scary movies, but I don't come away from those scared. It's just, it's a eerie, creepy feeling that. Yeah, it's the dread that's created with everything about it, you know. The two movies go about creating dread very differently, but also very similarly. I mean. Like I said, The Collector is not dark. Um, like, the cinematography is not very dark. I mean, I guess the basement is, but there's beautiful butterflies that are very colorful. She's beautiful. Like, Samantha Egger is gorgeous in this movie. This, you know, gorgeous red hair that contrasts yeah. with, like, how pasty Terrence Stamp is. Yes. And he's, he's really cute. Like, he's not, like... He's like Anthony Perkins in Psycho. Where you're like, well, he's kind of okay. Like, he's not. He's alright. I know if but he like, if he wasn't so freaking crazy, he could totally have gotten her. I believe yeah. if he could have acted as a normal, sane human being, I really think he underestimated his chances with her. Yeah, because he's he, not he unattractive. He's not unattractive but he's not able to connect with human beings. You know, he cannot make that connection with her. And when he, he, when his trying is like sad to watch, you know, it's like, that's when you, you talk about him trying to be something he's not, he's trying to like connect with her, but he has no idea how to do it. He does not understand the difference between caring about someone and caring for someone. He does not understand that. And he can't, he just can't do it. Like he, you're asking a fish to do calculus. He cannot do it. He's mentally incapable. Yeah, of and does he connecting with a human being? Now, maybe I am wrong. Maybe I'm seeing more in it than there is. But do you think that Terrence Stamp looks like a young Anthony Hopkins in this movie? Very much so. Very I, much so. Uh, I just I. I'm not saying that when that they cast that they thought of the collector 
when they cast Silence of the Lambs, although I would not put it past Jonathan Demme to be aware of the collector at all. But I'm not saying that was like, you know, foremost in his mind when he was casting it. But I thought, wow, he totally, to me, looks like a young Anthony Hopkins. Those bright yeah. blue eyes, the dark hair. Yep, I agree. I think that um, I don't find the characters to be similar, except in their stillness. You know, Freddie doesn't, he's not, he's just still. He's just kind of like economy of movement. He doesn't, you know, flirt around in the movie. He, he doesn't. There's not really any, There's a, I guess there's some struggle scenes, of course, because she's going to try to get away, but, like, it's short-lived, like, she's not getting out of there, she, and he doesn't, he just gets, he has, but he has that rage underneath of him, and the difference between that and Lecter is, I don't, Lecter has, I'm not sure Lecter has rage, I suppose he does somewhere underneath there, but it's, like, Lecter more has contempt. Like, yeah, <laughs> disdain. He's got disdain for people, and it's like they exist for him to be amused by or unamused by. And if you're unamusing to him, he has zero use for you. But you know, I wonder... He's amused, he's amused, he's interested and amused by Clarice. But you know? I wonder so, what Hannibal was like when he was Frederick's age. So has he always a, been like that? Or is that something that took years to evolve? There's a book called Hannibal Rising yes. um, that tackles that. I did not... so. Full disclosure, you know, The Silence of the Lambs is my favorite Thomas Harris novel. Um, I really like Red Dragon as well, which is the precursor to The Silence of the Lambs. But uh, Hannibal Rising, I, I did not care for Hannibal that much. It's okay. It's okay. Um, the movie, I think, I like the movie more than I like the book. But there's a, there's a movie and a book, Hannibal Rising. I find it to be trash, personally. It tackles why Lecter is like he is. And I don't need to know. I didn't really need to know any of that. I enjoy Hannibal Lecter for exactly what he is. And when you read The Silence of the Lambs, so, you know, I can't think of a more weirdly influential book on me as a person. It's very strange. So uh, I, I said I grew up in southeastern Ohio, um, and I didn't know what I wanted to be. I didn't know whatever. But so The Silence of the Lambs comes out, and I've been reading, like, I'm a teenager, 1990, um, so I'm like 15 years old. I'm a teenager, and in that space where everybody's talking about what are you going to be when you grow up, what are you going to be when you grow up, and you're, I don't know, you know, engineer or something like that. You're smart. You should definitely do something with math. And so I, I read so much and wrote so much when I was younger and read all Stephen King that I could get my hands on. If my mom didn't catch me with it, and I'd get in trouble for it. But, you know, anything I could get my hands on horror, I would read. And so I pick up, the, there's going to be a movie, Jodie Foster, The Silence of the Lambs, and I was a big Jodie Foster fan, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to read this book. And I remember it was the, like, you know, when the movie's going to come out and they tie in the, the movie poster with the book. Right. So I have the, I have the copy of the book and it's the movie poster with Jodie Foster's face and the moth across her mouth. Right, right. right. So I, I devour this book. I mean, devour it. And I read it multiple times. Like I start, I read it, stopped reread it, stopped, reread it, stopped, just over and over and over again. And then I saw the movie and I've seen it, like, I couldn't even tell you how many times I've seen it. I have parts of it memorized. But at the time, I was looking at what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I happened to go to, like, a women in science day at the local college. And they had a forensic science program. 
and it was one of the only forensic science programs you could get in at the time. Like this is in the early nineties. Um, and so that's what I studied in college. I went to school to be a forensic chemist because of the silence of the lamps. I've never actually worked in a crime lab. I never did any of the stuff like that Clarice does, but I have had, you know, old school training and all that stuff. And I, I'm a chemist in my daily life, not just a writer, but it's, it transformed me. It, it, it made me what I what, what I am today. I, I don't, I wouldn't be the same person without it. I wouldn't be on the same trajectory. I wouldn't. And I don't know that I can think of any other, like, I'm not sure it's a good thing that a work of fiction did that to me, but <laughs> it is what it is. Like, that's what it did. Well, so, you know, so it's interesting. Even the way I write, I would say that a lot of my writing, because Thomas Harris's writing style is really detail-oriented, but it's like, it's economy of words. Like, he doesn't, he's not flowery with prose. He doesn't use a lot of description. It's very economical, but there'll be a weird turn of phrase sometimes in one of his sentences. You're like, wow, that's weird and good. And it's by far, for me, his best work. Uh, the rest of them I don't find great. Um, and he had a recent book come out, Kari Mora, that I did not care for at all. So, I mean, he's, he's kind of hit and miss, but he had a whole realm with the Silence of the Lambs. It's his perfection to me. So Well, you know, I have to say that Silence of the Lambs was the first, I'm trying to think if it was the first, I believe it was the first movie I saw where... I wanted to read the book right after I saw the movie. And again, I was not, I've never really been a huge horror fan. I do love the Universal horror movies, but you know, that, those were never scary to me. Those were just fun. No. But when I came out of the movie, I just felt like I loved the movie, but at the same time I thought, I know that there's more to this story and I want to know what it is. For sure. It was... You know, you know, sort of the overriding thing. And so I went and read the book. Like, like I seriously went from the movie across the street to Barnes and Noble and bought the yeah. book. You know, the book is a lot more detailed with the interactions um, with Clarice and Lecter. And there's a lot more from Lecter's point of view. So you know a lot more about Dr. Lecter from the book. And he's even more terrifying. Like, Oh, yeah. I can't think of a performance where I'm more terrified by somebody, except for maybe, like, the Borg Queen in a Star Trek movie, because I'm terrified of the Borg. But um, Anthony Hopkins is straight-up scary. Uh, with with an economy of movement, he's so still in the movie until he's not. You know, he's super still in the asylum, and then when he when he gets taken to Memphis and, you know, he goes, he escapes, he's not still at all. He becomes this feral, crazed thing until he's not again, and then he's still again. So you see him, you know, he beats the guards to death and stages his escape, which is a brilliant escape. But after he's finished, like, he's beating them to death when he's done. The next thing you see is him standing there over the dead bodies, listening to the, just, like, the classical music very quietly, very slowly. The only thing he's moving is his finger, and he keeps time to the music. And that's so creepy. It's so terrifying that he's like that. But even the performance, I mean, you can go and read everything you want to know about all the little tidbits about how Anthony Hopkins came up with this and that and all the little things about Lecker. But it's masterful in the direction. I mean, Jonathan Demi was a great director. Um, the screenplay is masterful. It's a, it's, it takes all of the great elements of the book and it brings a couple more cool elements that make for a better movie, which is, I think, your goal as a screenwriter if you're adapting a book is okay 
this book is great on its own, but some things aren't going to film well for an audience, and i got to make it better. i right. got to make it more filmable. i got to make it more appealing to a wider range of people. And I think that they did that really well. I mean, there's there could be like a four-hour podcast on this whole book and movie and the differences between them, but there's things like, you know, the anagrams that Dr. Lecter uses in the movie. He doesn't do that in the book. He does something else, like, <laughs> in the book... He gives them the name of Billy Rubin for Buffalo Bill. Like, that's the right. big name. And right. Billy Rubin is, like, a pigment in bile that's also a pigment in human feces. Right. Um, right. So he's playing his little science jokes and all that. But in the movie, it's all anagrams, like Hester Moffat, The Rest of Me, and Lewis Friend, Iron Sulfide, Fool's Gold. Those are, those are clever little things. Like, I mean, I guess they're not quite as nerd funny is calling someone the pigment and feces but but the the general public won't know that exactly so it has to be yeah yeah, it has to be more accessible to to the general public and i have i have a quick question about the collector the book because the so the way it's divided up the the first part is Frederick talking. The second part is a more, um, it's Miranda's section. It's like an epistolary. It's, it's letters. It's her writing letters. And then the third part is, is Frederick again. Who is Frederick talking to in your opinion? And I don't necessarily have an answer for this. I'm just, I've just wondered who do you think he's, is this in his head? Is he talking to someone? Where did, where's that going on? Where's that conversation going on, you think? Um, so in any case, when you write first person, um, it's a choice as a writer. You're writing it. And so when I write first person, I'm writing it to the reader. I'm pretending that reader, the character is talking directly to the reader. And it can be sort of like, I'm trying to think of another first person. So uh, Interview with a Vampire they clearly stage that, that Louis is talking to, he's giving an interview to this kid, like this reporter. I think that Freddie's just talking. I think that he's just, he's talking to us, the reader. I think it's an interesting choice to go from first person, just straight up first person to the letters and the journal or journal entries or whatever you want to call them. It's a weird choice for me. Usually like a first person the thing we know about Freddie is he's an unreliable narrator. Anytime that you write anything in first person, your character is unreliable. So and I think another good example of that would be uh, if anybody's read We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a great little horror novel. Uh, and the, the narrator is telling you this story from their point of view, and they're not giving you all the details. And Freddie isn't either because he doesn't even know all of them. He doesn't you're right, he doesn't know himself. He doesn't know who he is or what he wants, really. And so it's sort of just him talking out loud. Like, it's him telling the story to an imaginary person sitting there. Whereas when you write the epistolary types of the novels, like, they're obviously communicating to a specific person. Um, I mean, Dracula does that. Dracula is all letters. And I think that, like Silence of the Lambs, there are things I like about the book, The Collector, definitely. I th- I prefer the movie. Yes. So I don't want to feel anything for a psycho. I don't, I don't want to <laughs> feel anything for Freddy. So to make me, I think it's a trick to try to use that first person to make me connect with him, which is 
a great trick. Like as an author, if you're going to do that, I guess do it. I did not enjoy it because I found myself going, oh, this guy's a creep. Like, I don't care yet. I hope he dies. I hope bad things happen to him. And so I didn't want to connect with him. But I guess that's part of the brilliance of trying to do that, right, is how can I – I know you're not going to want to sympathize with this guy, but how can I make you? That's well, skill. no, I'm I sure agree. I'm there with me, but I, I, I appreciate the effort. I appreciate the attempt. Well, so, the, so Foles cites three influences for the book. One is there was an actual newspaper story – of a guy who kidnapped a woman and kept her in like an air raid shelter for a few weeks. And so that's how he learned about that. It was like this whole idea of a woman in the dungeon type of thing. So there was a newspaper story about an actual crime. And then Bluebeard's Castle, that story was influential. <laughs> obviously. Yeah, the fairy tale. Yeah. yeah. And his own creepy fantasies and I think that's why I think John Foles is Klieg in this book I think yeah. it's the author talking to you and because he has he has said or he said that he had fantasies about imprisoning girls and he basically worked out his his weird proclivities in the book not endearing but <laughs> No, not at all. It's truly, it's it's terrifying all on its own. Obviously, he never did anything. We obviously, whatever he wanted to do or fantasized about doing, he did it in the in the book. And I, you know, obviously better there than in reality. But yeah, that was he had his own like weird desires. But he but he also, as you mentioned, class wanted to talk about how how. Frederick basically is like this because he didn't have as good an education as Miranda is what he's setting up that he has money and that if more and he says this in both the movie and the book that if more people would be would be acting like psychopaths if they had money he does say that yeah um, like if more people had money they would have other people would be doing this too right and but that there's he definitely makes a distinction with Miranda being a better person because she's, well, I don't know. I was reading some, some research on it and a lot of people were saying, oh, well, they think that he's saying Miranda is a good person because she's better educated. I don't know that it's necessarily, I guess we have, to, I guess it's whatever you consider a better, better education. I thought of it more as cultured. He can't understand art and literature it's not she knows calculus and he does it. right. it's not education in that sense it's it's more of a he can't read catcher in the rye and recognize any kind of correlation he does not have he's not wired that way um and he's not yeah that's, that's interesting it, the idea that the more money you have the more time you have to like think about these things i mean and i, I think that's probably what it is you know when you're poor and you have to go to work every day, you're generally thinking about, oh, God, I have to get up and go to work every day, and I'm going to do that. It's hard labor. You don't think about things when you're doing hard labor or whatever. You're, you're just simply trying to exist through your day. And when your day is not like that anymore, when your day is now sitting behind a desk, you have a lot more brain space 
to do these things and more opportunity and exposure to these things. You know, like poor kids don't go to museums. Poor kids don't go to concerts. They don't listen to classical music. I'm not saying all of them, but they don't have the exposure that kids that have more money do. I mean, I listened to some other podcast about, I think it was revisionist history where, um, you know, the Malcolm Gladwell talked about how kids, what's the difference between kids from low income families in school and kids from, why does it seem like kids from the higher income families always have a leg up? And it's because they have opportunity there, you know, during the summer, their parents aren't working or their parents are, are there to take them places. They get to go on vacation. They get to go to like NASA here in Houston. They get to go to the museums and natural history museum and whatever. They get to go see these things and experience stuff. And all those experiences change your brain. It's a fact, you know? Right. Um, and so when you grow up without that kind of stuff, you don't have, you don't understand these things even exist. You're like, I didn't know that existed. I mean, I can, I can remember going to college and I hardly ever seen cable TV. I've never seen MTV. I didn't know any of this stuff existed. Like, I, I mean, I knew it existed, but like, I'd never seen it. So you start, you start in the hole when you're people like him. And so he's trying to dig himself out of it, but he doesn't know how to get there. He's just digging the hole of worse hole. And, and you know, really, <laughs> yeah, but, but also it's interesting because that sort of plays out as well in Silence of the Lambs. Buffalo Bill doesn't really get going until he gets money from the yes. old lady. And now we don't always, it's not exactly as clear in the movie as it is in the book, how he got that way. I mean, in yes. terms of how he was able to set that up, but basically he meets an old lady and she wills him money and a house. And, and so she's a, she works, she, she's a seamstress. So she does complicated um, sewing projects like leather and things that are very difficult and Buffalo Bill, James Gum, gets his skills working leather in prison. He goes to reform school because he's crazy as a kid. I mean, he's mentally ill. He kills his grandparents. He goes to reform school. I guess reform school is a thing. I don't know. He's Anyway, he's incarcerated until he gets old enough so they have to let him out. And that's where he learns to sew. He learns to sew in prison. And that's what he does for the old lady. He helps her sew the complicated things, things that are very difficult to sew materials they right. talk about the fine leather that he used to working on. And like Thomas Harris is super, like I said, he's super detailed. He talks about tanning skin, like how you would effectively tan a human, human skin versus leather, how to make that. And it's crazy how detailed it is. Um, yeah, but, but no, you're right. More about that. He, 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 he learns the skill in prison, but he doesn't get to actually really act on it until the old lady dies and leaves yeah. him money. And yeah, he has disposable income. He can now, and he, he does like mail order. You know, people want something weird sewed, so he does it and he sends the packages out. And that's where he meets his first victim, Frederica Bimmel. She works for the old lady as well. That's pretty clear in the movie that that's where they yes. meet. Yes, But um, in the book, it's a lot more detailed about how they meet and how Clarice tracks them down. And, you know, I was thinking about some differences in the book, too, as we were chatting. And, you know, in the book, she knows a lot sooner that he's making a girl suit out of real girls. Like, that's not, it's not as a surprise as it is in the movie. We're like, oh, my gosh, he's making a, he's making a right. suit. Of course, we know it because you see him making the right, suit. Right. But Clar- Clarice knows it a lot sooner. And Dr. Lecter toys with her with it. He tells her all kinds of stuff. 
and uh, you know, so that, that's a big difference. Well, and I and I think it lends something to it. I think what's interesting, obviously, they're very different. The collection in Silence of the Lambs, but I think the things that carry over are. It's interesting that those are the things that carry over, like the fact that they both kind of fall, come into money sort of accidentally. The fact- Or even class in the Silence of the Lambs. Definitely, definitely. Clarice's, Clarice's poor, like literally poor white trash, there's the whole, you know, Dr. Lecter calls her out on it. Right. And Dr. Lecter is not poor white trash. He's very cultured, he's, he's, you know, he's the Miranda and she's the Freddy if you flip him around, right? Right. So, She's trying to learn, but he sees in her the desire. He sees in her that need to save everybody and to to be the hero and to make that change. And that's what he's playing with. He's messing with her, but he's interested in her. But I think also the fact that most of the women he kills, uh, Buffalo Bill, they they are not upper class women. They're, they're, they're the women who are, who he comes in contact with and like Frederica. It's interesting because I thought, I, like I said, I read Sounds of the Lambs when it first came out, but I didn't remember this, that basically the things that they gave to, a lot of the elements that they gave to Frederica were actually the senator's daughter, whose name I've now, what's her name? Catherine. Catherine Martin. Martin. I just thought it was very interesting in the book, Catherine Martin is the one who has the scandalous, salacious photos. Yes. She's, I don't want to say she's a stoner, but she's clearly, she gets she's captured. She's an underachiever. <laughs> she's an underachiever, but she's, she's less, I could see as I was reading it, I thought, oh, they thought these elements would make her less sympathetic. Yes. If she comes out um, of her apartment stoned and hanging out with some dude, like these are elements that even in 1990 were going to be seen as less sympathetic and, oh, she brought it on herself. I mean, they're still yeah. saying crap like that, but particularly, you know, in 1990, they, they want this character to be as sympathetic as possible. Some stoner chick who takes who takes sexual explicit selfies is less sympathetic. And they use it to make it sadder for Frederica because they, the whole interaction with the best friend where, oh, she didn't have any boyfriends and, you know, she's a bigger girl, right? She's heavy. I mean, Buffalo Bill is simply looking for raw materials. Right. Right. He's shopping for raw materials. And that's what the whole, like, it puts the lotion in the basket. He's completely de-objectifying. I mean, he's completely dehumanizing them to where he doesn't, that's not a person. It's just raw materials for me to work with. It's not personal. I don't hate you. I just need your skin. Right. I want your skin. It's for me. If I don't get this, I'm going to die. I mean, he's, in the book, they do a really good job of, I'm not going to say that you feel bad for Jane Gum. You definitely have a very good understanding of what he's really trying to accomplish and why he feels the way he feels. Not as good as Paris's previous novel, The Red Dragon. Uh, Red Dragon is, there's a lot of that book from the serial killer's point of view, and you genuinely feel bad for that serial killer. You're like, if he only had just one thing happen to him different, he wouldn't be like this. Jane Gum, I don't know. I mean, like, he's pretty awful. But it's very different in the movie where I don't think you feel nearly as, 
I mean, you don't feel bad for James Gunn at all in the movie. You're like, he's creepy, gross, he's nasty. I mean, he even looks gross. Like, yeah, his fingernails are discolored from whatever, from the tanning solutions and things. And he's just... He's, he's dirty. Not, he's, like, physically he's dirty. dirty. He's, like, lives in a dirty, gross hoarder house. And he's, like... Whereas, you know, in the book, like, he has the... The only thing about him that you can possibly think is any good is, like, he's so concerned for his dog's safety. You're like, right. oh, my gosh, okay. Thank God he doesn't hate the dog and that's a that's an important plot point the fact that he is so concerned for that dog oh yeah oh yeah you know, it stops him dead in his tracks i mean he's gonna um in the book they talk in detail he talks about how he's gonna get rid of how he's gonna deal with her he's gonna like he offers up a shower and marches him up the stairs but in the meantime he's tied a noose around their neck and he never takes him anywhere he just kicks him off the stairs and hangs him and so that's an important plot point in the book where Lecter says, I, I can tell you something about Buffalo Bill without ever having looked at the case file, and that's that he has a two-story house. Because he knows he's hanging them for the, he's hanging them to scare right. them. He's not doing it as a sadist, because Clary says that by the book he's a sadist. He's like, no, he's not, because where are the ligature marks? Like, and that fascinated me as a kid, all the stuff about the way that they they deconstruct the crimes and make this profile of a serial killer. And of course, like the movie, they have tons of um, references to the behavioral science unit for the, for the FBI. And I think it's John Douglas is the FBI guy who's caught all these serial killers and they had him as a consultant on the film. So they, I think they really tried to go for all that in the law enforcement aspect and how Clarice, how Clarice dissects the serial killer, you know, when they're in the car driving to the funeral home and she's going to do the autopsy or print the print the girl that's washed up um, on the rivers of West Virginia. She's read the case file and he asks her, what do you think? And then she starts in with all the stuff, like, well, he's a white male, blah, 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 blah. And I was fascinated by that as a kid. I was like, this is great. I want to do that. And that's one of the things that is so interesting about The Collector, which is that this is written... The book is written and the movie comes out before serial killer profiling was a thing. Like, that didn't really start until the 70s. I have to say, side note, I do love that show, Mindhunter. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> Which sort of is about, it's basically about the FBI agents who interview all of these serial killers in the 70s and start to create profiles of them. And so... This book is written before any of that happens. And you really get the, the profile of a serial killer before profile of serial killers was a thing. So, I mean, yes, Freddy is a fledgling. You're watching the very first time he takes his fantasies and makes them reality. And, you know, every if you like serial killer stuff and people that listen to this may or may not, you're going to get 50-50 because I'll promo it in places where the, I know a lot of people that like serial killers and a lot of people that love The Silence of the Lambs, of course, do. But, I mean, if, you, if you're if you a connoisseur of true crime or whatever, you're going to know that these serial killers all have this, they come, come to a point where it's all fantasy. And then, you know, you talked about fools having these fantasies that he's put in this book. Well, he wrote them in a book. Some people don't do that. Some people have them, and then they begin to act on them. And that's the that's the point that you're seeing with Freddy. You're seeing the point of a serial killer where he's had all these fantasies, he's got these ideas, and now he's actually executed the first one. And he kind of screws it up. And that's, you know, if you, when you watch the movie, he's like, oh, yeah, I got this all wrong, and... Uh, I could never have been happy with somebody like her. She was the exact wrong person. And then, 
the movie ends with him stalking this poor nurse. Right, right. He's already moved on to the next one. Oh, yeah, and we know that, well, now he's become a a full-on serial killer. Like, that's, he's turned the corner. She won't be the last one either. No. It's just going to be, it's going to go on and on and on until he dies or someone catches him. Right. And he's right. so good. He's good at it. There's no reason to believe that he's going to be caught. As as he says to Miranda, they're looking for you. They're not looking for me. Exactly. Yeah, he does, he does say that. That's super creepy. He's so earnest in his creepiness. It's like, he, he doesn't seem awful, except he is. And uh, it's kind of the opposite. You know, The Silence of the Lambs, Lecter is clearly awful. I don't know how you can watch that performance and not be scared of him. Um, and obviously Buffalo Bill's awful because that house is gross. He's got a girl in the basement. He's making a girl suit out of real girls. He's obviously a few bricks shy of a load or whatever, I guess right. I would say. I'm loath to go in. I can't, I cannot talk intelligently about like psychology and mental illness. I, there's a lot going on there. I mean, we can, I don't know if we were going to, were we going to talk on the controversies around the silence of the land? Yeah, I think we, I, I think we should definitely touch on it. It's, I should start this by saying that I had watched some of the TCM just started its own like problematic series, movie series, and Silence of the Lambs, I believe, is one of the movies that they were including in that. And basically the issue that has arisen over the years is uh, LGBTQ plus people saying that Buffalo Bill is extremely problematic character yes and i understand that i i definitely understand it it's on further watching after it's sort of like when something like that comes to your attention you can't ignore it anymore right so you're looking at the movie in a different lens than when you first saw it right um i think that and we've talked offline about this about i i understand the you know he does not you can't you can't like portray gay people like they're the villain like that like he's obviously he's gay and he's killing people that's he's a bad person i mean that's a very unhealthy thing to do um for audiences to portray them like that well and it's a trope i saw it and i yeah it's a trope and i i never really connected that when i watched the movie when i was younger i never did at all um yeah i mean like I'm not sure the scene where he tucks his penis up and does his weird dance thing does any favors for this movie. Like, right. it's, a, it's a visual that sticks with you, obviously. It shows, I think it's meant to show that, like, he truly wishes he was something else. He doesn't, he really wishes that's what he was because he finds it beautiful and he wants to be beautiful, too. He's ugly. He feels he's ugly. He feels he's gross. And he wants to be something else. I think that I can get that from it. The casual viewer does not. And I really think, because I, I said, well, you know, Clarice even says, like, there's no literature, there's nothing in the literature that says that, you know, trans people are dangerous or violent. That's not true. And Lecter says, you're exactly right. Do you know how close, you're so close to the way you're going to catch him. And that's how they catch him. They run his name through, like, through the major centers for sex reassignment, and they find that he's been rejected in several places. That's how that's how they catch him. That's how they figure out what right. his actual name is. Right. And stuff. So like you know that from the book. You you're not really making those judgments. The book he's a different character. He's very I don't know, it's kinda of like a caricature of a 
gay guy in it, <laughs> yeah. trans person. Yeah. So it's not particularly well thought out the way it's portrayed in the movie. I don't think that it necessarily is either on watching it later in life. When I watched it to begin with, I didn't think a thing about it. But I mean, the same could be said for a lot of those problematic movies. You know, I'm sure Gone with the Wind is right up there on it. And if you can watch that and not be like, ooh. Yeah, yeah. You know. But I think that it's, I would say one of the differences, though, is that it's like Gone with the Wind is so obvious. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's just, yeah. It's, it's easy. That's a very... That's like, easy. Right. Yeah, like Silence you said. Silence of the Lambs is not so easy to, to come and say, okay, what's the problem? I mean, like, again, I am not personally offended by it. I'm also not a trans person. But I can I can look at that and say that's that's possibly damaging to people. That's probably you know that's problematic. Well, I, I don't think they intended it that way. The intent was not like that, but that's what it comes across as, and that's the joke of like when people they want that joke scene where he tucks his penis away and like oh that's hilarious. Look at that. That's so gross. Whatever. I can't believe he did that. You know that's not healthy for for the marginalized people, right? To further marginalize them like that. Well, and, and also the whole idea of he doesn't know who he is. And right. because that's one of the things um, I feel that trans, particularly trans youth deal with is people telling them, oh, you don't know. Oh, you don't know yourself. You don't know what you want to be. You're just whatever, however old you are. You know, I mean, I think there's a sense of particularly when they're kids, that they don't really know what they are. And they try to diminish or demean who they are and, their, and how they feel. Because they think, well, you can't possibly understand or know who you are at this age. And I think that that's, that's certainly in Silence with the Lambs, even though he's not a child, he's a you know, grown-up, there's still this idea that you don't know who you, who you are. So... Is he really, is his character trans and he doesn't, and people are telling him you're not? Is he really not trans and he just really doesn't know, he genuinely doesn't know who he is? So I agree with you that we were both, we're about the same age. I didn't, wasn't aware of that when I first saw the movie, but I didn't even, I wasn't even aware of trans people. Right, and I wouldn't have This was that 30 was years ago. That was just not, it was not talked about 30 years ago the way it is now. So that was just not something we were aware of. And it was certainly not something I was aware of at, at 15. I can enjoy, I certainly enjoy the movie, but I can see that, I can see why people have issue with it. And I agree with you. I don't think that scene of him dancing around is really even needed. It's a joke. At his expense, but it's also at the expense of a lot of other people that yes. that don't need that. And I don't. It's a damaging I, scene. It's a damaging, it's damaging scene, and and it doesn't move the movie along in any way. It's not even just oh, it's a damaging scene, but it's integral to the film. No, it's really not. You would not notice anything if you took that scene out. No, I don't think so either. And. And pretty yeah, up to that is he's put on the wig, like he scalped someone, so he's putting on the hair, you know, he's putting on the makeup, he's, I'm not sure that, like I said, you don't need the full spread 
thing. Like, that's just shock value. That's not adding anything that I didn't already get from the previous little snippets and stuff. Right, Although, right. Although, you know, how anybody could ever hear the song Goodbye Horses by Hugh Lazarus and not think of that scene, I don't know how you would ever do that, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that band probably sold a lot more records because of that. So I'm sure. That's how movie soundtracks work. But, yeah. yeah, it's not, it's a, it's a damaging scene that, and then they're going to get a lot of people that disagree that it shows how awful the situation is. I'm like, well, I don't know how you could not know how awful the situation is. Like, he's got a girl in a basement. He hunts them. You know, that's another thing that's in the book that's a lot more prevalent is how he goes about it. Sometimes he turns them loose and puts his night vision goggles on and hunts them, which tells you that he's not just getting raw materials out of it. He's not just getting skin to make his girl suit. He enjoys the... You know, he enjoys that. He doesn't, it's a power thing for him. He does enjoy it. Oh, yeah. There's a thrill. Because if he didn't, he would, he would just kill him. It, it, it's like a slaughterhouse. Like, you don't feel anything for the meat. You just kill it and eat it. He, if, he did that, if he didn't care, if he didn't get off on it, he wouldn't be hunting them like that. And even, you know, at the end of the book in the movie where Clarice is in the basement and he turns the lights off on her and hunts her, um... You know, it's told from his point of view. Yeah. Parts of it. And it shows, like, he's like, she has beautiful hair. I can't wait to take that hair off her. It's going to be, that hair is even prettier than the one I have. You know, he's like, right. he's thinking already, and then he's like, it's going to be fun to hunt her or whatever. And then, of course, in the book, they do a really good job of describing how she hears him. She hears the click of the gun and turns, just whirls, and shoots him. Right. And they, they show that in the movie, too. He pulls back the the hammer of the gun and cocks it and that's when she whirls and just blasts him you know she doesn't even know what she's shooting at she just hears it knows where it's at and is firing for her life and Um, i wanted you to mention because you said you you lived in you were from ohio the connect your connection to silence of the lambs (laughs) this is really good so in the scene where they're in the uh, airplane, they're going to West Virginia to, to print the dead girl that's washed up, Jack Crawford, he has his case file open, and they're looking at, he's talking about where they found all the bodies, and then he's got a place circled on the map, and the last one's washed up here, Elk River, West Virginia, which, I mean, it's that's not exactly a real place, but um, the circle he has on the map is my hometown. <laughs> Marietta, Ohio. He's got Marietta and Parkersburg, Ohio, the border between Ohio and West Virginia. That's what he's got circled. And I never, you know, I'd seen that movie a million times. I was like, that looks, hold on a second. And that's when you pause it, like you're looking at it, and you blow it up and blow it up with digital stuff. I'm like, oh my God, he's got Marietta circled on that map. So if you're ever watching the movie and you're out there and you're like, you pause it on that scene and blow it up, you can really see that circled. And that was, you know, of course, when I was a kid, I didn't know that because that was far beyond the technology of the old VHS, VCR. Right, right. Um, but of course, now, you know, you could pause it with digital and go in closer and look at stuff. So anyway, that's a little bit of more connection for me, more creepy connection for me with the Silence <laughs> of the Lambs in case you needed some more. <laughs> well, I, we're coming to the end of this, I just, but I do want to touch on the butterflies because... Yeah. They are both very strongly in The Collector and Silence of the Lambs. But as you mentioned, we were talking earlier offline, that they represent different things in each book. Yes. 
Yeah, so the butterflies in The Collector represent to me possession and not the change that they represent in The Silence of the Lambs. Of course, in The Silence of the Lambs, they talk a lot about uh, he shoves a pupa into the victim's throat. All of them have this bug larva shoved, a, a chrysalis, a cocoon shoved in their throat. And he does that, like, Lecter goes into very big detail about it. It symbolizes change and something beautiful, like coming from something ugly. And that's what he thinks he's doing, right? Um, and the collector, Freddie is an entomologist or an amateur one, and he's all about possession. He thinks that possession is the, is love, I think. Uh, I don't know. He, he clearly, when he's talking about his butterflies and his collection that he has, like, I raised this one. Mine's the best one. It's better than the one at the Royal Museum of whatever. He's very proud of that. He's very dedicated to having, like, the prettiest butterflies to find him. That one's really rare. He's really into it. But he does not care for them. There's no love or care. It's simply to possess it and to always have it. He pins them. They don't even get to decay and go into a natural cycle of life. He preserves them and keeps them forever. They never get to move on with life. They never get to move on in their cycle. And I think that's awful. (laughs) It's really awful. Yeah. That you wouldn't get to move on. And she kind of remarks on that. She's like, you know, you've taken something beautiful and you've killed it for no reason. Like, you've killed it to just pin it up somewhere. Is that what you're going to do to me? And that's exactly what it does. Which is actually, you know, and this is another sign of how great William Wyler was. The very first scene tells you everything you need to know about what's going to happen in the movie. Exactly. It's literally a summation of the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He catches a butterfly, he looks at it, puts it in a jar, seals it up, and puts it in yep. his pocket and walks off. Yeah. That's the movie. And I, don't, and I don't know, you know, when I was a kid, I was in 4-H, and I think I took entomology for one of my 4-H projects, and I was out. I didn't finish it, because what you had to do was you collect the bugs, and then you have to kill them to put them on your little pegboard. And the way you do it is you get a, a mason jar or whatever, something you can seal up tight, and you put, like, chloroform in there or some kind of, like, gas to, you know, and that's what he does to Miranda, right? He, yeah. Chloroform is a big deal. And the way that, where you know, she can't, there's no oxygen, she's going to pass out, it doesn't kill her, but it obviously makes her not be able to be conscious. And But if, if you put yourself in a room full of, no oxygen, you're going to die, which is what the butterflies do. I was out. I'm like, I can't do that. I can't kill these things. It's, even if it's a bug, I still can't kill it. I don't want to do that. Yeah. And that, that takes a special kind of pathos, I think, to think about, all right, for the for the purpose of preserving these and make, making them always beautiful, I'm going to kill it. That makes no sense to me. And it makes no sense to her either. She literally says that to him. Like, this makes no sense to me. And also, and I like how she also mentions... How many have you killed? And he's thinking just the number that's in the room. And she's thinking the generations of butterflies that won't live because these have been killed. Yeah. And there's even a pathos about him breeding them to kill them, right? Because he talks about that. He's like, oh, somebody sends me the larva and I raise them and then I kill them. (laughs) He doesn't say he kills them, but he raises them and that's what he does. I mean, it's different. A lot of people might say, well, is that any different than, like, eating meat, right? Like, you raise a farm animal, and then you kill it. Eh. I mean, you consume it. It goes back into the natural order of things. 
I think it's different. I think it, I think it's more like a trophy hunter who kills a deer and puts the head on the wall. But it's like killing a lion in Africa. Like you had no purpose for that. Like you didn't eat it. Like you, you didn't kill it for any reason other than to make yourself feel powerful and super manly about it. So I don't really see the need to kill it. You know, there's a need. I mean, you have to eat to live. So if you're yeah. not going to be a vegetarian or a vegan, then you're going to have to eat meat. Kill it eventually. Um, but yeah, it's totally, it's very different. Um, I can recommend, so like on the lines of dehumanizing people, there's a book, um, and it's going to escape my brain because I was thinking of something else, but get me to talk about it later. You can put it on your website for Jessica Rainey's recommended reading list of psychos if they want some psychotic <laughs> yes. reading. But, uh, anyway, like there's a lot of stuff out there that kind of tackles that, but he's a special kind because he doesn't think there's anything wrong with him. Buffalo Bill's different, you know, he's raising the butterflies because he does feel they're beautiful and they mean something to him and he's sort of using it as a, I don't know, like signing his work, right? He's an artist and he signs his work. His art is death. Right. And he signs it. Right. Um, so he's different. And there, it's about change. Like he, at least from what we're told about him in the movie and in the book, he wants to change. He wants to become something different and he sees the beauty coming from the ugly. And that's kind of the difference in the two you know, butterflies. I'm sure there's like people that have great psychology backgrounds that can do a lot that do more justice to that whole idea. But I mean, just from the watching the two movies, you can easily get that from the two of them. So in summation, you would say that if you want a really creepy evening, a double feature of The Collector and Silence of the Lambs. I highly uh, recommend it. Yeah, I do. You're going to be pleasant. Like, People that are like, oh, I don't know, old movies or whatever. If you don't like old movies, why are you listening to this podcast? But I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. No. So it's a great fledgling horror movie for you to watch. It's, it's a good one that's going to be influential to a lot of other movies. And it's just darn right creepy. I mean, it's really creepy. Terrence Stamp does his thing. You're going to love him and hate him at the same time. Something I didn't get from the book. I did not love Freddy in the book. I love, I not love, I mean, but I felt different about him in the movie until he until I didn't and then the silence of the lambs is a I mean it's the number five AFI thriller of all time right I mean the things that are above it are like the exorcist and jaws and uh it's just hugely influential to the world of horror horror that is well done I mean it's one it won the major academy awards and it's my favorite movie of all time can't think of anything I like more so Uh, yeah great double feature uh, yes, I thought it was great. Now, do you want to just give a little shout out to where people can find you on social media? Yes, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all the regular ones, Jessica Rainey. My name's spelled like R-A-N-E-Y, so it's not like Rainy Day, but it looks like Rainy. Follow me, give me a shout out. I love to talk horror, I love to talk books, I love to talk movies, as you well know. Yes, so. <laughs> yes. It might be a little while before my next book comes out. You can get all my books on Amazon um, or really anywhere books are sold. It makes me super happy when people tell me they go to a library and request them. That would be cool. Like you go to your local library and request it and they put my book in your library. I'd be super happy about that. So. And I will add links to your books on my website to purchase them on Amazon. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, my books are super, na- I call it uh, Appalachian Supernatural Noir. So they're dark. They're crimey, whiny, and they're also with monsters in them. So I like to write your old-fashioned 
monsters, ghosts, and vampires and werewolves, but not in like a sparkly way. You know, they're more like um, I say, if Breaking Bad and True Blood kind of mixed up together, that's the place <laughs> I live in. So I, I like stuff like that, and I love noir. So I I write much darker than what I sometimes mean to, but I always love it. So. And we had an interesting noir talk um, a, a number of months ago. Is yeah. that still on um, online? I believe so. Um, okay. I need to double check all that and put, make sure that's up on my website. I'll do that for this so people can get linked up to it. But yeah, that's kind of how we we sort of met is uh, I was looking for people to talk about noir film because my new book was coming out. I was doing an online release party. And so we started chatting about film noir and you gave me a list of like the 10 film noir movies I needed to watch. We, we worked our way through them and then we talked about them and it was so much fun. I loved it. So and we do that now, like, you know, you'll send me, like, okay, watch this movie or whatever. I love <laughs> yes. it. It's, like, one of my favorite things. So. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. And I certainly hope you'll consider coming back. Anytime you want me to. Just give me give me a list of things to go watch. I'd be glad to. <laughs> I, I love to hear myself talk, so it's perfect. See, and I love to hear other people talk, so that's <laughs> Imagine in heaven. There we go. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Real Woman. Please join me next time when the topic will be cult movies.